From New York, this is Democracy Now! The message given today to Israel with this veto is that it can continue to get away with murder. Israel cannot and should not and will not get away with it. We will not allow it. For the third time, the U.S. vetoes a U.N. Security Council resolution demanding a ceasefire in Gaza. The Biden administration's backing of Israel has sparked widespread criticism, including in Michigan, home to one of the largest populations of Arab Americans in the country. We'll host a discussion with California Congress member Ro Khanna and state representative from Michigan, Abraham Ayah. She's the Michigan House Majority Leader. Ro Khanna's headed to Michigan to meet with Muslim and Arab American leaders in the state. Then to London, where a critical appeal for WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange against his extradition to the United States is underway at the British High Court of Justice. This case is an admission by the United States that they now criminalize investigative journalism. It's an attack on all journalists all over the world. It's an attack on the truth, and it's an attack on the public's right to know. We'll go outside the British High Court to get the latest. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The U.S. vetoed a U.N. Security Council resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. It was the third ceasefire veto issued by the U.S. at the U.N. body. This is Palestinian U.N. Ambassador Riyad Mansour. The message given today to Israel with this veto is that it can continue to get away with murder. Israel cannot and should not and will not get away with it. We will not allow it. This veto does not absolve Israel of its obligations, nor of those who shield it. The U.S. circulated its own resolution this week calling for a temporary ceasefire as soon as practicable, unquote. This comes as the death toll and humanitarian crisis in Gaza continue to mount. The World Food Program has been forced to pause food aid to northern Gaza due to the chaotic conditions. UNICEF has warned at least one in six children in the north are acutely malnourished. In southern Gaza, the World Health Organization Tuesday completed a second evacuation mission from the beleaguered Nasser Hospital, which was rendered non-functional after Israeli attacks. This is the WHO's Julio Martinez. You can think about the worst situation ever. You, you multiply by 10, and this is the, the worst situation I have seen in my life. It's the debris, the light, working in the darkness, patients everywhere. The World Health Organization says there are still some 150 patients and medical workers who remain on site at Nasser Hospital in life-threatening conditions. Lebanese media has said one woman was killed in Israeli shelling in the town of Majdazun in southern Lebanon. Israeli missiles also hit the Kafr Susa district in the Syrian capital, Damascus. Back in the United States, Jewish-American activists and others condemned President Biden as he attended a lavish fundraiser hosted by the pro-Israel Democratic megadonor billionaire Chaim Saban in Los Angeles. 
Yemen's Houthi movement said Tuesday it struck an Israeli cargo ship in the Gulf of Aden with missiles and targeted a number of U.S. warships in the Red and Arabian Seas. The Houthis also claimed attacks at several sites in the southern Israeli town of Eilat. The latest assaults come after U.S. officials reported Monday Houthi fighters had also shot down a U.S. MQ-9 Reaper drone flying near Yemen. The Houthis have vowed to keep targeting ships until Israel stops its attacks on Gaza. The Biden administration said it's preparing major sanctions against Russia in response to the death of Alexei Navalny in an Arctic prison, which it has blamed on President Vladimir Putin. Meanwhile, in Russia, Navalny's family is building pressure for Russian prison authorities to release the body of Navalny. The ex-social media account of Navalny's widow, Yulia Navalnaya, was temporarily suspended after she posted a video statement accusing Putin of killing Navalny and hiding his body to cover up the assassination. Navalnaya has vowed to take over from her husband and lead the opposition movement. In Spain, the body of a man who was found shot dead last week is believed to be a Russian pilot who defected to Ukraine in a military helicopter six months ago. Maxim Kuzminov's body was reportedly found in an underground garage with multiple bullet wounds. In response to the news, Russia's Foreign Intelligence Service director referred to Kuzminov as a traitor and moral corpse. In London, lawyers for the U.S. government are arguing before the British High Court that Julian Assange should be extradited to the United States, where he faces espionage charges and life in prison, 175 years, for publishing classified documents exposing U.S. war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan. The appeal is likely the last chance for the imprisoned WikiLeaks founder to avoid extradition. Julian Assange's wife, Stella, debriefed crowds of supporters Tuesday after the defense presented its case to the court. Whatever happens in the coming days, it's now been aired in court. The murder plots, the political motivation coming out of Mike Pompeo's obsession with killing Julian, and the murders that Julian exposed in Iraq and Afghanistan, the torture program that European countries willingly participated in. We free Julian, we regain our democracy. Later in the broadcast, we'll go to London, outside the High Court. In Pakistan, two major parties, the Pakistan People's Party and the Pakistan Muslim League, Nawaz, have agreed to form a coalition following intense negotiations. Elections earlier this month ended without any party receiving a parliamentary majority, though ousted and jailed former Prime Minister Imran Khan's PTI party secured the most seats in a major upset. Another former prime minister, Shabazz Sharif, has been named as the coalition's candidate for prime minister. This comes as a top administrative official confessed to vote tampering and resigned. After making the stunning admission, he expressed regret for, quote, stabbing the country in its back, unquote. Imran Khan's party has accused the powerful military of rigging the vote against him. 
In Somalia, the U.S. is facing accusations it killed two Cuban doctors during a recent airstrike targeting the militant group al-Shabaab. The Cuban doctors have been kidnapped by al-Shabaab five years ago. They've been serving in Kenya as part of a program where Cuba sends medical professionals across the globe to help improve access to health care. The doctors have been identified as Asal Herrera Correa and Landy Rodriguez Hernandez. Authorities in Rwanda have rejected calls by the U.S. government to withdraw its troops and missile systems from eastern Congo as clashes escalate in the region. Rwanda is accused of supporting the M23 militia. The intensifying conflict between the Democratic Republic of Congo's army and M23 has disrupted food supply lines to the eastern city of Goma, impacting more than two million people. This will result in famine because all of us in Goma depend on the Minova Road for agricultural products. They must do everything to reopen this road. I am convinced that opening this road will resolve the problem and everything will be fine. The country's authorities must do everything in their power to end the war. It's sure that after the war everything will be fine. They must do everything to end this war. Congolese protesters have called out Western countries' complicity in the worsening violence and humanitarian crisis in eastern Congo as millions have been displaced. Back in the United States, the Supreme Court rejected a case challenging the admissions policy at a prestigious Virginia high school, which has increased the school's diversity. The Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology, frequently ranked the country's top school, changed its admissions policy in 2020, resulting in a 6 percent increase in Latinx students and an 8 percent boost in black students. The new policy also allowed for more low-income students, English-language learners and girls to be accepted into the school. Plaintiffs argue the policy discriminates against Asian Americans whose representation in the student body fell from roughly 70 to 50 percent. Last year, the Supreme Court struck down affirmative action in college admissions. In a decision that shocked many in the medical community, the Alabama Supreme Court has ruled frozen embryos should be considered children. The ruling came in a case filed by a couple who sued a fellow patient who accidentally dropped a test tube, destroying the frozen embryos of the couple. The Alabama justices ruled the frozen embryos should be afforded the same protection as babies under the wrongful death of a minor act. Reproductive rights advocates say the ruling could result in the end of in vitro fertilization in Alabama and some other states. In Oklahoma, a 16-year-old non-binary high school sophomore died earlier this month, the day after they were assaulted by three girls in a high school bathroom. The student, Nex Benedict, reportedly suffered severe head injuries during the fight, but officials at Owasso High School reportedly did not call an ambulance. According to one account, Nex Benedict died due to complications from brain trauma. Family members said next face bullying since last year. In 2022, Oklahoma lawmakers passed a law banning transgender students from using bathrooms that correspond to their gender identity. And more information has emerged about the ex-FBI informant who was indicted for lying about President Biden and his son, Hunter Biden, receiving millions of dollars from the Ukrainian energy company Burisma.
Prosecutors say Alexander Smirnov blamed Russian intelligence agents for sharing the false information about the Bidens. A judge in Las Vegas ordered Smirnov's release on bond Tuesday pending trial. He's also required to surrender his U.S. and Israeli passports. The lies about the Bidens are central to Republican efforts to impeach the president. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. The second and final day of a critical appeal for WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange is underway today at the British High Court of Justice in what could be Assange's last chance to stop his extradition to the United States. Julian Assange has been charged under the U.S. Espionage Act and faces a 175-year prison sentence for publishing classified documents exposing U.S. war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan. Assange was again unable to attend today's hearing due to serious poor health and is not even able to follow the proceedings via video, according to his lawyers. Julian Assange has been held in London's Belmarsh Prison since 2019. Prior to that, he spent seven years holed up inside Ecuador's embassy in London. Ecuador had granted him political asylum. On Tuesday, Assange's lawyers told the court that the case was politically motivated, arguing Assange was targeted for his exposure of, quote, state-level crimes. Meanwhile, lawyers representing the U.S. government argued today that Assange's prosecution, quote, might be unprecedented, but what he did was unprecedented, they said. For more, we're going outside the British High Court, where we're joined by Matt Kennard, who's been closely following the hearings. He's head of investigations at the journalism website Declassified UK. His new book, The Racket, A Rogue Reporter Versus the American Empire, is out in June. Matt, welcome back to Democracy Now! Thanks so much for joining us. This is the lunch break of the High Court. Yesterday, the lawyers for Julian Assange made their case. Today, uh, the lawyers for the U.S. government argued he should be extradited uh, to the United States. Can you talk about what the judges who are hearing this case have been most interested in and your assessment of the presentation so far? Um, well, firstly, I should just say that this case, this hearing today and yesterday, is merely about whether Julian Assange has a right to appeal the uh, extradition to the United States. That decision was made a couple of years ago, and he wants to appeal it on the substantive issues. Um, and yesterday, uh, his lawyers went through the main issue, which is that this is a political prosecution, which is prohibited in the US-UK uh, extradition treaty of 2003. You can't, you can't send someone to the United States for political offences. They argued that even taken at its highest, the US indictment was, is indicting him under the Espionage Act, effectively as a spy. And that is a political offence. So that was how it started. They also argued that it contravenes the European Convention on Human Rights. Article 7 is about foreseeability. In 2010, when he began releasing the, the, the U.S. cables, 
he had no way of knowing that what he was doing was a criminal offence because it was never it's never been prosecuted by the US government before, even revealing uh, the names of human informants. So and then they went on to Article 10 of the European Convention on Human Rights, which is about freedom of speech and free expression and press freedom. Again, a huge violation of that, of course, if Assange goes to the United States. And uh, today, the the uh, U.S. lawyer effectively her case was about trying to differentiate Assange from journalists. They were saying he's not a journalist, he's a hacker, he's a computer scientist. When, of course, it's clear to everyone that Assange is a journalist. He revealed more criminality by the world's most powerful country than anyone's ever done in history. So, um, for me, watching the, the, the case, uh, be, the arguments being given by both lawyers today, it's clear that Assange should be allowed an appeal on the substantive issues because the original ruling in 2021, January 2021, by District Judge Vanessa Baretza, blocked the extradition of Julian Assange to the United States, but on very narrow grounds. She agreed with every dot and comma, effectively, of the U.S. indictment, but said that he was a suicide risk and the, um, the, the, the extradition should be blocked on those grounds. Uh, 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 the U.S. then appealed, won that appeal, uh, and said that we won't treat him in, uh, in, the, in the ways that uh, the district judge assumed. We won't put him under SAMS, which is extremely onerous prison conditions. Um, but, um, the, but that was then, again, and that judge found that, uh, uh, favoured the, uh, the U.S. But Assange was never allowed to appeal that original ruling on a substantive issue. So we must, for British justice, for global justice, because of course this um, this case is about global journalism, because Assange is an Australian citizen who committed these so-called crimes that the U.S. is indicting for outside of the U.S. Um, so if, if the U.S. if the Britain does extradite Assange to the United States, that gives the U.S. extraterritorial reach to go anywhere around the world, pluck any journalist who's publishing information they don't like, and bring him to the United States. It's hugely worrying for for not just for journalists in this jurisdiction, but any jurisdiction around the world. Uh, uh, Matt, you mentioned that Assange is an Australian citizen. On Wednesday, Australia's parliament overwhelmingly approved a motion calling for his release. Uh, is this significant at all in terms of the course of these hearings or what might follow? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't think it is, unfortunately, because we know the political pressure that has been brought on the United States government. There's been presidents all over the world, from Lula to Petro in Colombia, and they've all been calling and, uh, for the United States to drop this case and saying it's a huge violation of freedom of the press. But it's not happened. Um, and then you've got civil society organizations, NGOs all around the world interested in press freedom saying that this is a huge violation of press freedom. And it's had no impact uh, on, on either party because, of course, this indictment was first brought by the Trump administration um, uh, and then carried on by the Biden administration. So this is a bipartisan consensus in Washington that they want to get Assange. But what should protect Assange in this case? In, when he's being persecuted by the political system uh, in, in the United States is an independent judiciary in, in Britain. Of course, that, it, it, that's how we're told it works. But unfortunately, I believe that the, the UK judiciary has been captured by the state in this case, which is one of the surest signs of authoritarianism, and not only captured by the UK state, but captured by the US state. That also goes for the penal system. 
Why is Julian Assange in Belmarsh Maximum Security Prison in London? This is called Guantan uh, Britain's Guantanamo. It's full of rapists, paedophiles, terrorists. He's, he's never been charged and convicted with anything other than a bail, bail violation in the UK. That, that, and that conviction was spent in, in under two years. He's still there on remand, and it's nearly five years he's been there. So the whole thing has been irregular from the start. So I don't hold up too much hope for the British justice system. I think that what we, where there is hope is global public opinion. And as you can hear behind me, the, the, there's, the people on the ground are really coming out to support Julian Assange in Britain. We don't have the support in the same way from the mainstream media or, or even civil society as much as it should here, but that could change the game. So hopefully that pressure will tell. I, I do believe that it may look so bad for the British justice system to not allow an appeal that they will allow this to go forward, but, but we don't know. This case has been irregular from the start. And you mentioned uh, the, the folks outside the courtroom. Could you describe the scene out there and the, the level of public support for Assange uh, in the UK? Yeah, well, it's interesting. There's, there's two sides to this story in Britain, in that on the ground, there's a lot of people coming out to support him. Uh, you, you can see behind me, it's pouring with rain here, or it was. Uh, but you've got hundreds of people out here. Yesterday, there were thousands probably um, making a lot of noise. Um, and these people understand the stakes that, the, that, the, that this case holds because this isn't just about Julian Assange. Of course, it is about uh, saving the life of a brave journalist who revealed state criminality on an unprecedented level. But it's also about all of us. This goes to the very core of freedom in Britain, in the United States, globally, this case. And not just, uh, uh, free, not, not just in the short term. If they get Assange, then that's not power. They won't just uh, thank themselves and, and, and close up shop. They will use the precedent that sets to go after more and more people. The levies will break. Uh, and it will, it, will, it will be a huge uh, 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 nail in the coffin for investigative journalism, for any kind of publishing of information that state powers don't like. And it will be used by repressive regimes all around the world as an example of what they can do uh, if, if the United States is allowed to do it. If a, if, if a country like Turkey, uh, which, which puts uh, hundreds of, of journalists in prison, uh, looks, uh, is taken to task for that, they can just say, well, look, the United States brought Julian Assange over to the, United, to, to the US and stuck him in a prison for the rest of his life for, for revealing your war crimes. Why can't we do it? They can also then say, well, look, the British independent, so-called independent judges agreed with that extradition and did it themselves, so Britain has no leg to stand on. So we're talking about really, really serious base, basic issues, and these are issues that need to be heard in a British court, because today we're hearing some of these issues, but it's only a two-day hearing. What, they, what, what Assange's lawyers want is a right to have this uh, appeal and these substantive issues aired in public for everyone over an extended period. The, I'll, I'll also, I should also mention that yesterday they mentioned in court that uh, the Yahoo News article, this is when 34 former U.S. officials went on the record uh, to, 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 to explain that the Trump, senior levels of the Trump administration and the CIA had sketched plans to kill or kidnap Julian Assange in London because they didn't like his reporting. Now, in my opinion, that should have the case thrown out immediately. How can you extradite a journalist and publisher to the country which is on record as plotting to assassinate him? Add to that, there's other revelations that have come out that the CIA spied on his privileged conversations with his lawyers. Again, any normal case, 
that would just get the case thrown out completely. But this is not a normal case. And the British justice system is not applying the rule of law or due process in this case. In the case of Daniel Ellsberg, which uh, US listeners will know well, he, his, the Pentagon Papers case, his case was thrown out because it was revealed that the Nixon administration had burglarized uh, the, his psychiatrist's office to, to get dirt on him, to smear him in the media. Matt, that, that, that's not as bad as what we've heard about what they've done to Assange already, but nothing seems to... Uh, the, the British justice si system seems to be impervious to the murder plot and to the spying of well, the CIA. Well, Matt, I wanted to go to that point you raised about Yahoo News. Uh, we spoke with the investigative reporter Michael Isakoff uh, with Yahoo News back in 2021. His piece was headlined, Kidnapping, Assassination and a London Shootout inside the CIA's secret war plans against WikiLeaks. He details how the CIA considered abducting and possibly murdering Assange while he took refuge in the Ecuadorian embassy in London to avoid being extradited. Um, so more than 30 former officials, as you said, described how then-CIA director Mike Pompeo was apparently motivated to get even with WikiLeaks following its publication of sensitive CIA hacking tools called Vault 7, which the agency considered the largest data loss in CIA history. This is Michael Iskoff laying out the story. But what really set uh, Mike Pompeo, the new CIA director, off was that Vault 7 leak. This was on his watch. This was his agency. And while Pompeo had been somewhat dismissive of the Russia allegations uh, uh, and Assange's role in that, uh, the Vault 7 uh, leak uh, focused his energies on getting back at uh, WikiLeaks and Assange, at dismantling the organization. I was in uh, the room when Pompeo gave that speech in early uh, April 2017, where he described for the first time uh, WikiLeaks as a non-state hostile intelligence service. I thought and assumed, like many, it was some kind of rhetorical talking point, a grabby line that Pompeo had come up with. In fact, that designation um, in, internally opened the door for the CIA to launch and plan all sorts of operations that didn't require a presidential finding and didn't uh, uh, and wasn't going to be briefed to Capitol Hill. These were offensive counterintelligence activities. Uh, Pompeo, uh, uh, there, there's abduction plans to, to basically a snatch operation to take Assange from the Ecuadorian an embassy. Uh, there was talk of assassination, although we want to be clear, that never uh, was forwarded to the White House. That was internally within the CIA. The abduction plans were, as part of a, a much broader, multi-pronged CIA uh, attack on WikiLeaks that included stealing computers, surveillance of uh, WikiLeaks associates, sowing discord among its members, and Trump White House lawyers so raised that's, concerns that... That's Michael Isakoff explaining on Democracy Now! this assassination attempt. We just have 30 seconds, Matt Kennard. Apparently, the lawyers for Julian Assange introduced new evidence. The judges seem to be interested in this. Can you summarize, will there be possibly more hearings in British court? And then what happens? Uh, if they decide to extradite him, he is like a month before he's extradited. 
Well, um, uh, so if, if the appeal is granted, it will it, it goes back to to the uh, back to court, and they can argue the substantive issues. If they reject the right to appeal, that's the UK legal system exhausted. But there is the European Court of Human Rights, which can issue what is called a Rule 39, which would stay the execution. Oh, sorry, stay the extradition until the European Court can look at the case. But again. As I said, Britain hasn't applied the rule of law or due process in this case, so it could be that they, sh they get into the United States before the European Court of Human Rights can even issue that injunction to stop the extradition. Matt Kennard, we thank you so much for being with us, head of investigations at the journalism website Declassified UK. His new book, The Racket, A Rogue Reporter versus the American Empire, out in June. Previously, the director at the Centre for Investigative Journalism in London, speaking outside the British High Court, uh, the two days of hearings going on right now um, on extradition, a request by the United States to send Julian Assange to the U.S., where where, if convicted, he faces 175 years in prison. Coming up for the third time, the U.S. vetoes a U.N. Security Council resolution demanding a ceasefire in Gaza. The Biden administration's backing of Israel has sparked widespread criticism, including in Michigan, home to one of the largest Arab American populations in the country. We'll host a discussion with Michigan State Representative Abraham Ayash and California Congress member Ro Khanna, who's headed to Michigan to meet with Muslim and Arab American leaders in the state. Stay with us. out by the cranberries. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. The United States on Tuesday vetoed a widely supported Security Council resolution demanding an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. The vote was 13 to 1 in favor of the resolution, with the United Kingdom abstaining. It marked the third time the U.S. has vetoed a Security Council resolution demanding a ceasefire in Gaza. The vote came a day after the U.S. circulated a rival resolution calling for a temporary ceasefire linked to the release of all Israeli hostages. Nearly 30,000 Palestinians have been killed in Israel's assault on Gaza over the past four and a half months, with thousands more missing and presumed dead under the rubble. Nearly 70,000 people have been wounded. Eighty percent of Gaza's population has been displaced, while a humanitarian crisis continues to worsen, with a quarter of Palestinians in Gaza facing starvation. 
The Biden administration's support for Israel in its assault on Gaza has come under fierce criticism, both around the world and here at home. In Michigan, which is a key battleground state, home to one of the largest Arab-American populations in the country. A campaign is growing to vote uncommitted in next week's Democratic primary in protest of President Biden's policies backing Israel. For more, we're joined by two guests. Michigan State Representative Abraham Ayash is the Michigan House Majority Floor Leader, the second-ranking Democrat in the Michigan House. Uh, Representative Ayash was among several Arab and Muslim leaders who met with Biden officials in Dearborn last week after refusing to meet with Biden's campaign manager, Julie Chavez-Rodriguez. He's also joined more than 40 other Michigan elected officials in pledging to cast a vote for uncommitted in Michigan's February 27th primary. He's joining us from Detroit. Joining us from Washington, D.C., on his way to Michigan, is Democratic Congressmember Ro Khanna. He's the deputy whip of the Congressional Progressive Caucus and is going to Michigan tomorrow to meet with Muslim and Arab American leaders in the state. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Um, Abraham Ayash, let's begin with you. What are you demanding, as a Michigan House Majority Floor Leader, <clears throat> what are you demanding of the Biden administration. You don't usually take such stands against your own party. Uh, but right now, uh, the Democratic Party is really dealing with enormous pressure at this point. Can you talk about what you want to see happen? Look, I think our demands are simple. Uh, we just don't want our government, our country, to support, to aid, to abet any operation that kills innocent men, women, and children. It is not a radical idea for us to suggest that the richest and most powerful country in the history of the world should not be funding what we see as a genocide, that uh, we have seen 30, nearly 30,000 dead Palestinians at the hands of U.S.-funded Israeli missiles and bombs. And uh, we want uh, our leadership to not engage in that type of moral failure and that degenerative act that does not dignify the humanity of the Palestinian people. So, you know, more than anything, we're not standing against anyone, but we're simply reaffirming our stance for humanity and for the basic tenets of human rights, which says it is not a crazy concept that we should not be supporting any effort that is killing any innocent person in the world, uh, especially to the magnitude that we've seen in Gaza, where more people have died in this conflict than any war since World War II. Um, which is just a devastating toll. And, and, and uh, we're hoping to exercise our right. We're going to use uh, uh, the, the ballot box on February 27th to show that we are going to not support any effort that is supporting a genocide, and that we're going to stand firm and hopefully allow this administration to change course before the November election. Well, I wanted to ask uh, Congressman Ro Khanna, uh, who's with us as well, uh, you said that, uh, for example, that uh, President Trump is too dangerous to not support uh, uh, President—I mean, uh, former President Trump is too dangerous to not support uh, President Biden. Uh, your, your response to the, those Democrats who cannot, uh, in good conscience, uh, vote for President Biden, at least in this primary? Well, first of all, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Representative uh, Ayash, and I'm looking forward to seeing him uh, in Michigan. I do believe the administration needs to change course in foreign policy 
in the Middle East in order to gain the trust of people uh, who we have lost. You can't just meet with the Muslim American or Arab American community and then veto in the United Nations a resolution calling for a ceasefire and, by the way, an unconditional release of the hostages. This is the third time we have vetoed that. It is hurting our moral standing. It is hurting our commitment to human rights. And it is not giving confidence to people that you're hearing them and changing course. So my hope is in my meetings with Representative Ayash and others that we can come up with a strategy that helps change course in the Middle East so we get a permanent ceasefire, so we have a release of the hostages, so we get aid into Gaza, and we have more peace and justice in the region. Um, and Representative Ayesh, I wanted to ask you about the, the meeting you had with Biden officials uh, earlier this month in Dearborn. Uh, what did you get out of those talks? We're firm in, in uh, re reiterating our points. We want to see an immediate permanent ceasefire. We want to see humanitarian aid delivered to the people of Gaza through entities like UNRWA. And we want to see restrictions <clears throat> and conditions on the aid that is sent to Israel. You know, it is, it is unfathomable that uh, we just send a blank check with no conditions to a country that has violated human rights, that has violated international law over and over and over again. And we rec reminded the administration that, one, they showed up 124 days into this conflict. They visited a state that happens to be the swing state. So we are not seeing the level of support. We're not seeing the level of concern uh, that our communities have demonstrated for months. And um, we reiterated those uh, messages once again. And unfortunately, just four days after that meeting, we saw uh, the Netanyahu regime uh, did one of the worst attacks on the Rafah uh, region. And the United States still did not put the type of pressure on that regime to stop these heinous acts. Let me ask Congressmember Khanna, um, do you think the Biden administration made a mistake in vetoing yet another ceasefire resolution? Um, and I want to go a little further. Right after the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations issued that veto, President Biden uh, was in Los Angeles at a fundraiser. Um, uh, he was uh, attending a high-dollar fundraiser with the media mogul Chaim Saban, well-known um, Democratic pro-Israel billionaire. The dinner—the uh, the meeting was at, what, $3,300 to cost as much as $250,000. I'm looking at a piece now in Common Dreams. Your thoughts on this and on President Biden continually saying he's putting enormous pressure privately on Netanyahu, yet their public acts continue to be against um, the kind of ceasefire that uh, was put forward and vetoed at the United Nations. It was a mistake to veto the United Nations resolution. At the very least, we could have abstained. I mean, you have 15 countries on that Security Council, 13 of them are voting for a resolution for a permanent ceasefire and a release of all hostages, which is the sentiment, not just in the world, it's the sentiment about the majority of American people. And we are the lone uh, no vote uh, in uh, the global community. It is hurting America's standing in the world, especially an administration that is committed to multilateralism and rebuilding uh, international institutions. What does this say about 
uh, the credibility of the UN if we aren't going to participate in those institutions. Uh, the other issue is that uh, I appreciate that there has been some movement in the administration because of many of us in Congress who have called for a permanent ceasefire, who have called for uh, a humanitarian aid to Gaza. There has been movement in recognizing the uh, value and dignity of Palestinian lives and the humanitarian concerns. But now we need action. There needs to be clear consequences uh, to Netanyahu and his very far-right-wing government. I mean, people in his government are way to the right of Donald Trump, and that is important to understand. People like Ben Gavir, they, it needs to be clear to Bibi, he can't go into Rafah. Our Secretary of Defense doesn't want it. Our President doesn't want it. How, who is he to defy the United States of America and then expect us to continue to provide uh, military aid to do that. So we need to be very, very clear of the consequences, and that is not what has happened so far. Uh, Representative Ayash, I wanted to ask you, in December, you embarked on a hunger strike and joined a demonstration outside the White House to call for a ceasefire. Why is this issue so deeply personal to you? Look, my chief of staff, uh, is on. Her, her two aunts were one of the victims of, of the Nekba. And I remember her telling me the story where uh, her father and his two sisters walked across the, the Jordan Valley only for the two aunts to pass away from uh, dehydration. You know, there's a real pain and real history behind uh, the dehumanization of the Palestinian people. And we've seen people all across this country uh, stand up and say, our country should not be looking by while all these innocent men, women, and children are suffering at the hands of a right-wing regime that Congressman Khanna mentioned that we are funding. You know, if you look at the, the facts, a majority of Americans, 80% of Amer Democrats support a ceasefire, over 60% of Americans support a ceasefire. Yet we see a majority of Congress and this White House just seem to ignore the will of the American people. You know, that is just a uniquely un-American concept when you have folks for months who have protested, folks for months who have stood up and said, we demand that our country lead with moral conviction and say that no innocent man, woman, and child should be murdered at the hands of U.S. weaponry. And our leaders just seem to ignore it. And I'm grateful for leaders like Congressman Khanna, who has stood firmly and supporting human rights, who stood firmly in saying that Palestinians deserve just as much dignity as the Ukrainians, as the Israelis, as anyone in this world. But to see our leaders continue to ignore the will of the American people uh, is extremely disheartening. And, uh, you know, that is why this issue is so important for so many people across this country, because it is a reminder that we are going to continue to fight for our democracy and continue to fight for democratic values and ideals. And it is through things like voting uncommitted and continuing to organize and protest for peace all across the world. Congressmember Khanna, you said there needs to be consequences um, uh, to affect Israeli policy. Do you think that the U.S. should cut off military aid uh, to Israel, to Prime Minister Netanyahu, for what they're doing in Gaza right now? And if you can talk about the big meeting you're going to have tomorrow um, evening um, with Rashida Tlaib, the Take Back Our Power campaign, Rashida Tlaib, the only Palestinian-American uh, member of the U.S. Congress. 
Well, I voted no on the blank check, 17 million of uh, unrestricted money to Israel just a week or two ago. And I certainly don't think we should be giving them more of the precision missiles, which would go to attack people in Rafah. Uh, I don't see how we can bypass Congress, which has been happening to provide offensive military weapon, weapons to, to undertake uh, strikes that our own government is saying should not happen. Uh, let me just say this. I'm really looking forward first to meeting uh, people like Representative uh, Aya and uh, other uh, Arab-American, Muslim-American uh, leaders. Uh, he's not just a representative. He is uh, go, uh, the leader in the Michigan House. He's going to be a future governor, future senator, future member of Congress. And this is the point. The coalition of the modern Democratic Party is not the coalition of 1972. It is a coalition that includes young people, progressives, Muslim Americans, Arab Americans, Jewish Americans, young folks. The AME Black Church has come out for a ceasefire. And we better wake up to that fact because the future of the Democratic Party is going to demand uh, justice uh, for two states, a Palestinian state living side by side with an Israeli state, and is going to demand concrete actions for uh, a ceasefire and recognizing the humanity uh, of both Palestinians and Israelis. The conversation with Rashida Tlaib is one about uh, electricity and power and uh, justice on that, though I'm sure other topics will come up at that town hall. We want to thank you both for being with us. California Congress member Ro Khanna headed to Michigan tomorrow. And Abraham Ayash speaking to us from Detroit, the Michigan House majority floor leader. The Michigan primary is February 27th. That's next week uh, in Michigan. When we come back, leaders at this year's African Union summit condemn Israel's assault on Gaza. We'll get the latest and also hear decisions they made around Sudan, around the Democratic Republic of Congo and more. Stay with us. what it is by Samir. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Leaders at this year's African Union summit in the Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa, have condemned Israel's assault on Gaza and called for its immediate end. The chair of the African Union Commission, Musa Fahi, on Saturday said Israel's offensive was, quote, the most flagrant violation of international humanitarian law and accused Israel of having, quote, exterminated 
Gaza's residents. Meanwhile, Azali Asumani, president of the Comoros and the outgoing chairperson of the African Union, praised the case brought by South Africa against Israel at the International Court of Justice, where the court ruled there's plausible case that Israel's committing genocide in Gaza. During last year's AU summit, an Israeli delegate was removed from the plenary hall amidst a disagreement over Israel's observer status at the African Union. For more, we're joined by Nanjala Niabola, a writer and political analyst from Kenya, joining us from London. Thank you so much for being with us, Nanjala. If you can start off uh, on Gaza, this um, <clears throat> meeting this past weekend in Ethiopia, where you even had Lula, the president of Brazil, coming to address the group and saying that Israel was committing genocide um, in Gaza, um, whereupon Israel's prime minister said that Lula is persona non grata in Israel. But talk about the significance of the meeting on Gaza, and then we'll move on to other issues. Sure. Thank you for having me, Amy. Um, I think it's important to understand that the African Union as a bloc has been a consistent supporter of Palestinian rights since 1972 and arguably since 1948. Um, many of African nations see um, similarities between and they see really an identical experience between uh, Palestinian occupation and what the, the, they have endured as under colonization. And so there's a lot of empathy there and there's a lot of resonance there. Um, it's important, though, to distinguish the position of the African Union from the position Position of individual member states. So while the union itself has been consistent and has um, always held the line that Palestinian independence was an integral part of the African Union's uh, foundational documents and foundational position in international relations, various African nations, because there is no um, impetus from the African Union for there to be always a single position within each country, various African nations do have uh, different relationships with both Israel and Palestine. So, for example, while every single country in Africa except one recognizes the state of pa Palestine, um, the recognition of the state of Israel has varied. Um, there was a time in the 19, after the 1972 war where African nations unilaterally wholesale declared that they would not recognize the state of Israel, but that has changed considerably. Similarly, in relation to the African Union itself, Palestine has had, the Palestinian territories have had observer status at the African Union since 2013. And so you mentioned how the Israeli representative of the African Union, to the African Union was asked to leave um, the, the meeting of the African Union in 2013. 22. This is really because there's been a lot of back and forth about whether or not the African Union as a body should recognize um, Israel as a uh, observer. Observers um, do not get to vote, obviously, on various issues that are before uh, the African Union, but they do get to participate in uh, meetings and they do get to contribute to conversations in some ways. And so it, it is an important thing to be an observer at the, at the African Union, and Israel has made significant diplomatic inroads in this regard. But the position of the African Union, as a, uh, which is the head of states, the meeting of the head of states is the most senior decision-making entity within the African Union, as opposed to the commission, which oversees the day-to-day -day running of the organization. The position of the African Union heads of states has always been that Israel did not have that observer status, and this was the back and forth, that the commission had taken an action that the union itself had not endorsed, and this is why the Israeli representative was asked to leave. This remains a, a position of contention, um, and the 
increase of the violence in Gaza has only made it clear that the African Union is going to remain with the historical position, which is recognition of the Palestinian territories and a demand that there is adherence to international law on the issue of Palestine, and that includes the occupation, predates October 7th, goes all the way back to every single UN resolution that has been passed on the issue to date. That's the official African Union position. And what we've seen in this last week is a reinforcement of that position, a reification of that position. Nanjela Nyabola, you've spoken in the past about Namibia, which before Palestine was the last country where international law on occupation was tested. Uh, South Africa occupied Namibia until 1994. What were the lessons here, and how did they shape the knowledge of the terrain of occupation and its impact on people being occupied? Well, it's really been one of the most interesting developments um, in international relations in relation to Gaza is that we're finally seeing this recollection of the fact that African connection with Palestine A is not a new thing. And there's been a long history of solidarity and support with liberation movements, particularly the ANC in South Africa and SWAPO in Namibia. So as you mentioned, Namibia was an occupied territory, was occupied by the apartheid government of South, South Africa until 1994. And SWAPO and the ANC both worked together to end that occupation, but also collaborated with the uh, Palestinian Liberation Authority, Palestinian Liberation Organization, to try and coordinate whether it was a political support at the international level, which was a crucial element of ending that, um, but also through the trusteeship mechanism. Namibia was under the UN trusteeship um, commission through the trusteeship mechanism, trying to find ways of negotiating independence for Namibia and protecting Namibia from further South African incursions. Um, South Africa, the apartheid, the South African apartheid government's relationship with its neighbors was always fraught. There were frequent bombing campaigns that happened in in, in Botswana. There was fighting in uh, Mozambique and in Namibia, and so there was always this tension between um, the apartheid government and governments in the region. And so Palestine in that regard becomes a natural ally because that experience of occupation is very similar. And so when we saw at the ICJ this week, the Palestinian submission um, to the ICJ, there was this recollection of the fact that SWAPO and ANC have always been allies of Palestinian liberation. And what we're seeing with this Palestinian reinforcement of international law is not a new occurrence. It's something that South Africa and Namibia both learned keenly through the process of fighting for independence and the end of apartheid, and they would like to see it replicated in the way uh, the Palestinian issue is handed, handled at the international level. And that is, once again, this is what stick to the letter of the law, because this law exists for a reason, and this law came through for Namibia. Can it provide the same protection for Palestinian people? Very interesting that at the International Court of Justice um, yesterday, in this six-day hearing that's taking place, where more than a quarter of the UN's countries—it's the largest gathering ever—will be speaking against Israel's occupation of the Palestinian territories. Namibia spoke, of course, South Africa, which has brought this other case around the case, the genocide case against Israel, and also you have the U.S. vetoing the UN. Security Council resolution yesterday for a ceasefire that was brought by Algeria, a country that was occupied by France by more than a century. Um, Nanjala, if you could address that and then move on to the DRC and the issues raised there uh, around uh, the warring that's going on in eastern uh, Congo and particularly around Rwanda's role with the M23. 
So one of the important things to remember is that diplomatically at the international level, African countries are the most cohesive voting bloc, certainly at the United Nations, but in other international forums. And this is because, again, as I mentioned, the African Union mechanisms for deliberation are actually incredibly strong. Um, when there is an African line on an issue, there's a lot of negotiation that precedes that. But countries tend to vote by the line, and there tends to be very much a consistent diplomatic um, uh, front. And this is one reason why Israel, for example, has tried very hard to make inroads with the diplomatic uh, community in Africa, because on all of the votes that have come down the General Assembly that have consistently criticized Israel, even at the Security Council, anything that's managed to get through that has criticized Israel, African countries have consistently voted in favor of these resolutions. And so there is actually this bigger issue of numbers. You know, we tend to think about power and international relations in terms of military strength and in terms of financial strength. But what Africa has at the international level is just sheer numbers. We're talking about 54 countries that have a very interconnected view of history and tend to work together and cooperate together um, and bring those numbers together for all of these international votes. And so Algeria is a big country on the continent, even though it might not seem that way um, um, externally. But Algeria has been one of the most consistent defenders of Palestinian liberation on the continent, came out very strongly against Israeli diplomatic presence um, uh, at the AU, came out very strongly um, in favor of uh, Palestinian independence and supporting the Palestinian liberation organizations. And so it's not a surprise to see that Algeria at the Security Council would take this very strong position because it is very consistent with Al Algerian diplomatic history. And as you said, it's because Algeria has endured several, you know, decades of French occupation that culminated in one of the most one of the most violent wars of independence that we've really ever seen globally. And, you know, France is still in the process of trying to make reparations for this because for Algerians it remains a very sore uh, spot in history and it remains to be a, a very you know, fraught question between France, Franco-Algerian relationships. So I'm not surprised to see Algeria bring this resolution forward, just like, you know, as you, you've probably heard from American analysts, you know, it was not a surprise that the UN voted, even though it was a disappointment, that the US voted in the way that it did. Um, and I think we're going to expect to see a lot more coordinated action being led by nations like Algeria, South Africa, all of these countries that have historically supported Palestinian liberation in Africa will continue to toe this line because it is not just a question of, uh, it's a question of history, it's a question of, of solidarity, it's a question of shared experiences of all of these systemic types of violence. And Nanjala, we only have a, less than a minute left, but I wanted to ask you about all of the heightened anti-colonial sentiment that has swept across uh, Central Africa and the Sahel region with numerous coups uh, in the in the region in in recent years. Uh, how has this affected the uh, the dynamics at the AU? It's definitely complicated things, and there's probably three things that I would point out. One is that this is not happening in a vacuum. We are also feeling the secondary effects of the ongoing war in Ukraine, Russia's ongoing war in Ukraine. The Sahel region has historically attracted a great deal of attention because it has been the crossroads of trade between Africa and Europe. But it's also been in contemporary history, the main pathway through which migrants from as far afield as Bangladesh, but also from the continent, cross the Mediterranean to get into southern Europe. So in terms of international 
international diplomacy, it's attracted a great deal of attention from Europe. There's a great deal of financing for migration management. There's a great deal of financing for ending wars that have happened in the region. At the same time, you have this young generation. Remember that no. Africa is the youngest continent in the world. You have this young generation. Many of these cool Nanjala, leaders Nanjala, we're going to have to wrap there, young. but we're going to continue and post online at democracynow.org. Nanjana Nubola, speaking to us from London. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.